On today's episode, we hear the epic story of how a social studies teacher went on to become an executive coach for clients such as Navy SEALs, Fortune 1000 companies, startups, and more. Welcome to episode 23 with executive coach, sales guru, and just an overall good dude, Ryan Williams. You are listening to Len Jones Party of Two, where experts and influencers speak honestly and openly about their keys to success. Sponsored by TrueFace.ai, where your face is the key. For more information on TrueFace, please contact your host at ian at TrueFace.ai. Now, pay close attention, because you're going to learn today. Oh, what up, fellow human? You know, a big realization I had this week was understanding just how important it is to ask for the opinions of others when making big decisions. I think it is impossible to be unbiased to ourselves when we make important decisions because we are inherently biased towards our own personal belief system. When we seek the viewpoints from friends and mentors, it does wonders to help you gain a clearer image of what you really are trying to accomplish and really to shed the dead weight of things that aren't important to you. So after this podcast, I challenge challenge you to reach out to one of your peoples and get their insight on something that has been plaguing you. And if you're new to the podcast, our mission here is twofold. To educate aspiring entrepreneurs by dissecting the come-up stories of incredible humans by extracting the golden nuggets that you can apply now to better your life. And second, to have all my friends in my life that are making moves to meet my other friends in life that are making moves to create one giant community of extraordinary people. Now, have you ever heard anyone say, oh, I can't do that because I'm not a salesperson. And then they go on to sell you on how they aren't a salesperson? I see that all the time. This ongoing self-limiting belief that only certain people were born to be salespeople, you know, raised by the dragons of Khaleesi to just be natural salespeople. And you know, I am under the personal opinion that everyone is in sales in one way, shape, or form. By understanding that we are all salespeople, it will prepare you to be better equipped to accomplish whatever goal that you're looking for. Even if it is as small as trying to get the clerk at the local 7-Eleven to trade your one for four quarters to do laundry without actually having to make a purchase. Sales skills are magical for all aspects of life, and that is why I am stoked to have today's guest, Ryan Williams, on the podcast. I first met Ryan during my time going through the 500 Startups Accelerator program with my company, TrueFace. Ryan gave a talk about how to find your ideal customer profile along with buyer personas, and I was hooked to his teaching style and his way of explaining things. Ryan's story is an epic one that is highly unusual in terms of a typical career. Ryan's started off as a social studies teacher for many years, but had this urge to do more to help more kids at once, which got him into fundraising for the Boys and Girls Club, raising millions of dollars for them. Fast forward, that led Ryan to becoming a sales trainer for multiple massive startups. And now Ryan is an executive coach for clients such as Navy SEALs, Fortune 1000 executives, startups, and more. On today's episode, Ryan speaks about how important culture is to predicting the future growth of a sales organization. Ryan's unique philosophy on education as it pertains to college, how to get yourself to stand out from the pack, what to look for to create a seamless sales cycle that doesn't waste your time, and an insight into the minds of fighter pilots and Navy SEALs upon entering the market. After listening to this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a comment telling me the one thing you liked best. It could be some sort of idea, concept, or strategy that you really got the most out of and can implement into your life now. And so without further ado, let's jump into it. We're here at with the Mr. Ryan Williams, the sales guru of the future. Ryan, how you doing, man? I'm good. I don't know about sales guru, but uh, I try to help when I can. You know, you're you're such an undercover, just 
absolute badass because you come to off as such a jolly happy human like when someone first meets you they're like oh this guy is just such a teddy bear and then when you get behind the mic you spit absolute hot fire on how to build and scale a sales team (laughs) you know before i ever got into sales my first job was actually working undercover (laughs) when i was a kid i was uh undercover for the illinois tobacco control commission wow yeah, true story. And so I, what my job was to, I didn't even, I didn't think we'd go, go there this fast, but uh, the backstory on that was my job was working for, uh, to buy cigarettes before I turned 18. So let me ask you this. Would you sell, would you sell cigarettes to that kid? I mean, if I was, depends who I am. <laughs> right. So I was a hundred percent on my buys. And so what would happen is I would go in undercover with a uh, state, uh, state police officer and uh, get someone to intend to sell to a minor, and then I'd tell them that I left my wallet in the truck and walk out. So, so you're it's like funny a- that you introduced me as undercover sales whiz because I'd never really been called that anymore. But that was actually my first job. Wow, how old were you? I was uh, 16 and 17, and then when I turned 18, they fired me for being too old. It's ages. Was that like first job? Basically, first job. I had some other things I did too, right? How do you even I- get approached for that? Uh. I was a troublemaker. I was a, I was one of those kids that like started trouble in high school, but started the wrong kind of trouble. So like I tried to get everybody to walk out of school one day and then somebody asked me what my intentions were. And I said that I just wanted to see what would happen. And they're like, dude, you, you can't be doing stuff like that. So, um, there's a announcement at my school one time that, uh, anybody who wanted to write a letter to the state board of education indicating what they thought was wrong with the school, they should come down to the office. And so I was the only one who showed up. I don't know why, but uh, I wouldn't write my normal essays for school. But, you know, I, I filled this out and I got the State Board of Education. That, and what, the, what they were doing is they actually had a it was a process to apply to be a student advisory ambassador. And so I ended up being an ambassador to the State Board of Education just for being kind of a loudmouth. And in that process, one of the guidance counselors was like, hey, I, I got a perfect job for you. Like, you seem like you're a pretty clean kid for somebody who's a troublemaker. Uh do you smoke? And I said, no, I don't smoke. And he's like, well, you want to go buy some cigarettes and help, <laughs> help the police uh, narc them out. Uh, but yeah, I did a lot of weird stuff. I, I think that was my, my intention was to have every type of job. Uh, and so I, I don't know if I've succeeded yet, but I've had a lot of different weird things come up. Right. Well, Ryan, I, I first met you because we were going through the 500 startups program with our startup Trueface. Yeah, I remember and, that. Um, First, you gave a speech that I attended, and you were talking all about ideal customer profile, buyer personas, um, the different uh, different just ways to build and scale a, a, any sort of sales team. And then you went on to kind of really help mentor and, and personally guide us, and you offered us a lot mm-hmm. of insight that's helped us to this day. Um, just going through your background, you know, you weren't always this Navy SEAL or Adobe Fortune 1000 company executive coach. Like, like you are now. Can you kind of give us like the background? I, I know you just glimpsed into it, but like the early yeah. Ryan Williams. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So we, we, we got a little window into that with uh, the story I'd, I've never really told about a high school troublemaking. But um, <laughs> I, I started off my career as a seventh grade social studies teacher because when I was in school, I could just I couldn't picture a better way to help people. And once I got into the classroom, I discovered that there was actually some bigger ways to help people. And I moved from a classroom teaching job affecting maybe 30 kids to uh, working at the Boys and Girls Club where I was helping, you know, a few hundred kids. And so I was running a computer lab there. We ran out of money. And so I went to my boss and said, hey, I'm going to fundraise for my own program. 
and that turned into a job where I was managing a state board of education grant to put 17,000 kids in an after school program all over uh, inner city Chicago. And so that was really where my career started, where I realized that resources are, resources are things that can be asked for. Although I said I'd never do sales, that was basically the, the initial kind of like framing of my career. And, uh, and then I just kept looking for how do I, you know, how do I do things that are bigger? How do I serve, serve more? And so I, you know, Boys and Girls Club, I was a part of a team that raised $15 million a year for about six years. And then uh, went and you know had a few other jobs on the way to California. And by uh, 2010, uh, I had just left an ad tech uh, or an advertising company that I was with in San Jose to join as employee 15 at a company called AdRoll. And so, if you remember when retargeting started, these were these display ads that would quote follow you around on the internet. Now there's a lot of talk about data, Cambridge Analytica, and all these things. But initially, it was pretty clean and safe. It was a great way for marketers to show an ad to somebody who stopped, you know, stopped the conversion process of their website. And so I joined that company as employee 15. I was there, uh, later became the first manager, first sales manager, built a $58 million sales team and helped them grow to about 600 employees running training for 350, um, running a pretty big team. I had a lot of fun doing that. Uh, and then I've had been fortunate to have several other sales kind of career moves since then. But, you know, if you had to kind of put it all into one, uh, one bucket, it's, I've always thought about how do I, you know, do the most to help the most people. Yeah. And your intentions are always so pure and good. And I think that's one of your big secrets to just kind of falling into all these different successful opportunities that you then capitalized on. Because you're just you have such good intentions, you're 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 good willed, and that can go so far. But just to circle back, did you go to college? I did. I went to a small school in St. Louis that most people haven't heard of, but that's where I studied education and sociology, and then later went to grad school at University of Chicago for a master's degree in social work. But now, what's your philosophy on education? If you were to say, like, love it, love it. You should be responsible for your own education, and sometimes you need schools to do that. Sometimes you need hard knocks to do that. And a lot of times it's about asking the questions yourself. And this honestly would be the same answer I'd give my seven-year-old if she were to ask me the same thing. Hopefully someday she asks me what my philosophy of education is. But it's rare that you have somebody um, who's actually sitting on the other side of the mic who had to write a you know 200-page paper about their philosophy of education. But that's what was required of all the students in my teaching college was to say, this is what I believe students should think and do. And uh, and, and that's where it kind of started for me realizing that like, Hey, you got to be responsible for yourself. And so everything I've learned has been cause I went out to go learn it. Do you think that college itself was the learner of that? Or do you think going out and failing and, and learning as you go is how you kind of obtain those skills? You know, what's funny is the research says that a lot of the times that these big learning opportunities we have, we actually learn most of those lessons by choosing to go out and have that experience. And so I, it's been validated a couple of different ways, and I've, I've told other people about this study. But when I was an undergrad, I studied why people learn so much in outdoor education. And one of the studies that I, that I found, this is probably uh, late, late 90s, 99, 98, 99. There was a study that uh, looked at the students of Outward Bound. And Outward Bound, for those of you who don't know, is a, a really cool wilderness education program uh, if you've ever been to outdoor ed in school, it was probably because Outward Bound influenced your school to do something like that uh, from, you know, 
early days. But uh, the study was was done on participants, and they discovered that deciding to go to an outbound course is where all the learning and growth happens. That decision to go, and then everything else is antidote that fills in. Like, hey, this is you know, it's basically like you've outlined the growth that you want to have mentally, and then you receive that. So, uh, you know, going to college because somebody says you should. I don't think you're making that kind of commitment where you're going to be open to learning that. Where for me, I was going to college to kind of get even with the people who said that I wasn't smart enough to go. So I'd already kind of made a decision. This is what I want to learn. This is what I wanted to do. And I fought tooth and nail. I'm not a very smart kid. And so I fought tooth and nail to get to that B average that I knew I'd need if I were ever go to grad school. And I called my mom one time crying that I thought I was going to get a, a low, low grade on something. And she said, I don't know why you're working so hard at this. You don't even like school. Why would you want to go to grad school? And I was offended. She didn't understand that, like, this was me getting even with the world. Like, this is what I wanted to go out and do. And I think it's really more of that persistence. And so I hope that, you know, people that are kind of on the fence about whether or not they stay in school, go to school, seek out another program, go to a hacker camp, and all those other decisions you make in life really just comes down to what are you trying to accomplish? And how do you be of service to other folks by doing that? Yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely tough to be passionate about something that you're just not into. Yeah. Like, you know, I can't get. Did good... you go to school? Yeah, yeah, I went to University of New Hampshire, studied economics okay. for the sole fact that economics sounded smarter than business. <laughs> okay, I, I like that. Right, it's not quite econometrics, but it's close. Right. Um, I first got involved with network marketing when I was fresh out of co- like okay. I, when I was in school, and that basically involved building and developing a sales team. And that was the most amazing learning lessons I ever learned because I had to fail first. I had to literally get in front of people, present, and you know, just learned as I went. But I think that anybody that is passionate about something, they need to be fired up about it in general, just kind of like what you were talking about. But so you, you were a social studies teacher fresh out of college. Yeah. So I actually, um, you know, you're asking a lot about like kind of core beliefs and foundational stuff. And I didn't think that you could go to school and then one day graduate and say, now I'm a teacher. That offended me also. So I didn't think that you should pick anything that you have to then go do to then become. You should instead decide that, you know, if you're going to be an educator, decide you're going to be an educator that day. And so when I went off to school, I, I took that approach with it. And so any breaks I had, I was home teaching at West Chicago Middle School for several breaks. Uh, I spent the summers uh, teaching at a summer camp in northern Michigan where I was a kayak instructor, I built the, I built the curriculum to see kayaking for these kids. And, and I loved thinking of myself as an educator. And so by the time I graduated school, I had had more hours teaching than a first year teacher would have. And so I just went to them and said, Hey, one, pay me as a second year teacher. And they, they, they did that, which was very kind. Uh, because I think now looking back, I don't know if I would have evaluated myself the same way, but I learned a heck of a lot from all those experiences And I called myself an educator from the point that I wanted to do that. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of kids in school who might be listening and saying, hey, uh, someday I'm then going to get into marketing. Well, there's no reason to wait and get into marketing. As you know, this, there are so many other things you can market. You can run Facebook experiments on your own. You can uh, build a a site or a community. You can uh, do product marketing for yourself, write your own blog, get into content. You don't need to wait and decide you're going to be in marketing the day of graduation. That's just that's wasting four years in my eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's cool. Your story's cool because, I mean, that's such like a like a 180, you know, going in as a teacher and then all sudden teacher to business. Adv- yeah. advising yeah. early stage startups and getting into yeah. business. But do you think that the foundation of you as a teacher really laid down the foundation for you today when coaching clients? 
Yeah, it's amazing. You know, people people look at that and they point and they say, man, obviously you're a teacher because I learned so much. Uh, my job as a coach isn't actually to teach anybody something. It's to help them on the path that they need to be on to go get the lessons uh, that will play into them being successful. And so usually what we do in coaching sessions is we start with like, where are you going and what are you trying to accomplish? And then we back into what do you need to get there? Uh, and that's usually what I do is I spend a lot of time helping, whether it's startups or executives. Um, and you mentioned that I do some some coaching with with those who are career tra- transitioning from the Navy um, and other you know kind of divisions of the Special Forces, both SEALs as well as fighter pilots, uh, Green Berets, Airborne Rangers who are saying, hey, I, I want to go out and get this cool career transition. How do I go do that? And a lot of my work is helping identify what needs to be done for that client. So whether it's business or whether it's career or whether it's students, it really comes down to uh, helping people identify that uh, rather than actually like, hey, I'm going to teach you this new thing, even though I do still love to teach. And obviously we met because I do sales talks and a lot of them are on my blog at salesclider.com. But, uh, but, but yeah, I can't turn off the teacher. Uh, but usually that's not what my core job is. Right. So let's circle back a little bit into uh, sales and, and training. And, you know, you really yeah. have such a unique insight into how to grow and scale a sales team. Um, I'd love okay. to kind of know about, you know, what is it that you look for in a thriving sales team? Yeah. So sales is one of those things where you can actually tell a lot about a sales team by culture. And so I was fortunate enough that one of my first sales jobs was coming up on a team that looked out for each other and did a did a lot of work around how uh, one could support each other's deals. It was very collaborative. And I think if you said today, like, I'm going to build a collaborative sales team, uh, and you just started by just hiring people and telling them it was collaborative, it might be really hard to do. But if instead you say, I'm going to find some people who really want to be successful and care more about the success of people around them than they do about their own success, kind of a low self-orientation, if you will, they, that is usually the key that I find to having a really thriving team. A lot of people look for like, I want to make sure the team is really competitive and and that's fine. If that's your definition of like success is to have a team that really competes with each other. But I think that when you back up and you say, well, it's not really competition. I want people to drive each other to be great. Uh, that can be competitive. And it can be, I want to be number one this week or, or, or this month or this quarter. I want to make president's club. But if you're driving to be the best because the person sitting next to you is, is driving to be their best too, uh, that, can, that can lead to some of that great chemistry that I really like to see in a sales team. But, you know, competition for the sake of it. You know, I, I heard a story at a conference last year. I went to, um, I think it was last year at Jason Lipkin's Saster conference, which is actually just coming up in, in a few weeks. Um, I heard a CEO tell the story about making a spot bet to two of his VPs. And he just said, Hey, you guys, you got to figure this out. I'm going to give X amount of money to whoever does. And, and he just wanted those VPs to just compete those two departments just to compete with each other. And I thought that was like basically the worst advice that I've ever heard at a startup conference. Now I'm not running this billion dollar company. This guy was, but, uh, but that seems like that's a lot of like coming from a really, self-interested place. I need to compete. I'm bringing my hundred people on my team to, to fight with you so that I get that bonus of maybe it was like a hundred grand or something, not nothing, right? It was, it's re, it's real money, but, uh, but bringing a lot of consequence and a lot of energy, uh, onto that floor that maybe there's more efficient ways to get that accomplished. 
So basically creating a culture that it, you can you can tell a lot by the sales production by the culture that they walk into because if the sales yeah, rep right is on. happy if they're happy yep. with the the company they work for they feel comfortable in their skills they feel like they yeah. they're actually learning something that's something that is a tall tale sign that this company is going to see further growth yeah yeah i think so i mean there's other stuff that matters too right you have to have the right product you have to have the right timing you have to have a, a team that's really kind of in tune with what the market needs but uh but culture will reveal a lot of those things, I find. Um, you know, having a sales team that, that blames on the product to say that the market's not ready for our product, they might be right, but a team that wants to win for the sake of winning um, and, and wants to, you know, thrive, you know, those teams, those teams do well because they want to do well, uh, even if the product or the market is not, is not quite right. They, they still find a way to be successful now, does that mean they're the next billion dollar company? Well, a lot of times that's not the case. You know, I mean, the odds are against you on that one, but um, they're working towards it, which is pretty cool to see. You know, Ryan, some pe- sometimes people will say, um, no, I can't do that because I'm not a salesman or yeah. I- I'm not in sales. Especially you'll, you'll hear people say that all the yeah. time when you pitch them yeah. on some sort of thing. Be like, oh, no, I'm not a salesperson. But uh-huh. then they circle back and then pitch their friend on why that movie is better than the other movie. Yeah. What is your philosophy? Do you think that anybody could become a phenomenal sales rep or do you, are there certain qualities that you look for in someone mm. that you think would or could become phenomenal in sales? Yeah. Well, I, I agree with Daniel Pink that everybody's in sales and he, you know, and he, he writes that in one of his books that basically, uh, the, the book is called to sell as human if anybody's looking for it, but give some great advice around like, how basically everybody's in sales. And many people say they're not in sales because they're trying to avoid one of the mechanisms we use in sales for compensation, which is having a quota and getting a bonus structure. And that, that scares a lot of people because they want to know that, they're, that their money's safe and that they're appreciated for everything they do, not just what have you done lately. And, and I, I thought that too before I got into sales. But what I found being in sales is it's really about, you know, knowing that your contribution is aligned with a specific business goal, uh, the, the, that didn't matter as much that, that I was being paid on commission. Um, now, was it always easy? No. Did I have some months where I, I, I thought I should have won a deal that I didn't? Yeah, for sure. I think we all do. Uh, but, you know, I worked at a really, really supportive, awesome nonprofit where I thought I had the best job in the world. And then I got furloughed after Christmas because we ran out of money. And I went back to raising money for the organization right after that. And looking back on those times, I realized that, you know, that that really kind of uh, shaped the way that I thought about uh, about rewards and incentives. So incentives is one thing that always comes up when someone says they don't want to be in sales. And the other thing is there's this inherent belief that sales is about being dishonest and about manipulating someone else. And I don't think you can be good at sales unless you you let go of that belief. I think there are some people who, who maybe get lucky or, or might be successful on the numbers with sales by deceiving other people. But the people who say, I don't want to be in sales, if you ask them why and they're honest with you, they'll say something like, I don't want to be in sales because I think I'm manipulating someone else or because I think that uh, it's not fair or honest to do that. That, that. that usually is kind of at the core of the main objection and then the, and then the comp thing. But if that's the core of the objection, and you can release that and say, okay, what if you did sales and you were honest? What does that look like? You start to get a really interesting definition, right? Mark Cuban says, 
when I realized that sales was just helping people, I, it really got easy or something like that. I'm probably missing the quote a little bit, but, uh, but he, but he said he, you know, he realized it was about helping other folks. And I, I think that if that is your direction, then, uh, you can be great at sales. Right. Is there like a, maybe looking back in your career, you know, you've, you've sold to huge corporations, small corporations. You've definitely been around in yeah. every single way, shape or form. Is there like a certain experience that you can reflect on like a certain sale that maybe yeah. you worked for years on and either you won it or you lost it, but either way it taught you so much. Yeah, I do. I, I can tell you exactly where I was that deal. And, and I'll back up at the, at the manager level. I always said when I was managing teams that the most important thing that happens uh, in the life of the sales rep is when they decide that sales isn't luck. Right. So, so if we say step one is understanding that, that the quota will take care of itself. And step two is realizing that you need to focus on being honest. Well, then step three is really identifying what are the things you can do that control whether or not that piece of business gets done. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean who you talk into it. Uh, I think there's some skeptics listening that will think, oh yeah, sure. You know, he's full of it because sales really is about manipulation. And I, I honestly don't believe that it is. But I believe that it is about intention. And you do have to be intentional if you want to get, the, get, get a deal done. The bigger the deal is, the harder it is to get done usually. And that often means that it's really complicated on the buying side of the organization. So if I had to point to one deal, I can tell you exactly where I was. It was, it was November of 2011. I was working at Adwell. And we sold into a subsidiary of GE. And, uh, and it was some, a deal that I prospected. It was a deal that pushed our limits a little bit. It was a deal that I felt very proud to be a part of, but it was the first time that I had been selling that I was able to look back and identify every step of the process and choices that I made that led to a place where in November of 2011, I knew the deal would close. And I know it's the exact date because I was also when my daughter was born, my first daughter, Emma was born. And, um, I knew that I had to take some time off to focus on the family and I was able to do that with a clear head. Now, did I get the you know longer paternity leave that I wanted? Uh, absolutely not. I had to go back to work right after. But um, I did realize that the work that I had done had lined everything up so that this deal was going to close. You know, and and that's and that's been a, a killer lesson for me. And uh, I would be remiss because my kids are going to listen to this, and then they're going to be Lily is going to want to know why I didn't talk about her. But I learned the lesson in 2011. But I continue to learn the lesson uh, every chance I get. And it seems like it's that that's so interesting because I think like the number one principle in sales that most people screw up on is the follow up. They tend yeah. they tend to not, you know, I think the stat is ninety percent of sales are made between the fifth and ninth follow up, but it's yeah. very typical and normal for a human yeah. to get turned off when someone says no the first time, let alone the yeah. second time. Yeah. Uh, I found just doing, you know, software sales for sure that it's all about timing and if you're not in that ear if you're not following up correctly you're just not going yeah. to be in a position so do you have any insight into following up and also in collaboration with that question do you recommend like what's your philosophy with crms when it comes to sales yeah so let's talk about follow-up first crm obviously helps with follow-up um, the key to knowing what the right cadence is a number of outreach attempts or a number of follow-ups is to really identify what that buyer needs. Remember, sales is easy when you realize that it's helping people. Mark Cuban. So we need to look at what does that buyer need? 
if that buyer is walking into a store because they need to buy a new, you know, a new tool to fix their roof because their roof is leaking and you greet them at the front of the store and you say, let me talk to you about solar panels. That is really not that helpful for somebody who has a leak right now. It might be a helpful conversation and they might be qualified because they're a home buyer that lives in the right market. They might qualify on your sheet of what qualification is uh, or homeowner rather. And so, um, that could be your definition of like, well, I struck out, but at least I talked to the right people. Let me go home and say it was a good day. But if instead you look at that as like, well, I'm going to look at people who have this specific need, right? And instead of prospecting at Home Depot where people are going for tools to fix their roof, instead I'm prospecting at Home Depot where people are looking at solutions to, you know, conserve energy. You know, maybe they're, they're walking the aisle of the insulation or maybe they're looking at light bulbs. It seems like that would be the right time to have a conversation about uh, electricity and efficiency. And so, uh, so I really think, you know, the follow-up piece is key, but before you can know when to follow up or how to follow up, you got to understand what your buyer wants. You know, a lot of startups that I talk to, they say, well, how do I know what my buyer wants if I'm new to a startup and I haven't sold before? And then I say, well, well, how did you know this product was a good product to, to make? I say, well, I, I had, you know, I would have been a user of this in my last job. I was, you know, director of cyber at Salesforce, or I was, you know, head of M&A at Microsoft. Well, and, and I needed this product then. Okay, great. Then you are the person that would have bought from you. So let's talk about how you acquire software for that job and what is valuable to you. Because if it's what's valuable to you is somebody calling you and saying, hey, I've got this spec sheet on the thing that I know you're going to need in the next six months because I saw you've added more than X number of employees man, that's not a follow-up. That's like a sign from God, right? That's like a, <laughs> it's delivered from the heavens, you know? And, you know, it depends, but, but, I, but I often tell people, like, start with what you know. And if you know a lot about that industry or you know a lot about that thing that they need, reach out and say, hey, I saw you just crossed more than 50 employees. You're probably at your wit's end handling payroll. I was too when I was your size. Let me tell you about how this payroll provider can be helpful. That's a call that I think most small businesses want to get. I know I do. You know, when I'm at the right stage for something, I do want those calls. Uh, so that's crucial. Would you say that companies, especially startups, just target so companies targeting the wrong buyer persona is one of the largest things that could lead to failure? Uh, I think so, for sure. Uh, not knowing kind of how the buyer thinks is important, but also like targeting the right people is essentially. Uh, is, is essential to, to making sure that you're running the right sales process. I worked on that a lot when I was at Lead Genius as VP of Sales. We worked with, with clients like, uh, like Box and IBM and Google to make sure that they're selling to the right people, to make sure they have the right data in their stack to be doing that, uh, the sales they wanted to do. And so a lot of that was about bringing personalized information in. And personalized, not like, hey, you know, Ian, I saw that you're a uh, you know, big Cubs fan. So I'm going to send you something, you know, so that can, that can work, but that can be gimmicky, but instead being really personal about like, you know, um, knowing what's on the menu when you reach out to a restaurant to buy uh, a restaurant solution, knowing, uh, when I was in hotel technology, we did a project, actually one of our first big data projects was to identify what the most important thing is to the hotel is their trip advisor score. And every GM will talk to you about their TripAdvisor score. So if you're selling to hotels and you call them up and say, hey, Frank, I noticed that you're a 3.5 out of 4 in Yachtville, California. 
they will take that call and they will want to talk to you about how they can change that score because they want to be four out of four on the, um, they don't do stars or circle. Maybe it's five out of five. It's been a while since I was doing that, but, um, but that's, that's really important. And, and that can be authentic if, if you want to be authentic, uh, and you can target the right people. Yeah. CRM is a, is a, is a player in that, you know, you asked about CRM and, and I, I like being prompted for the right follow-ups, but I also like making sure you're targeting the right people who actually need your product. Uh, one thing that I always remember you for is your way of Uh-oh. describing undercover tactic ways, going back to you as a 16-year-old, of how to yeah. kind of get in front of the right person. And I remember you advised me to change my description and my LinkedIn from you know, sales to developer evangelist. And what, what happened with that? Was that good advice or bad advice? It was good advice for a long time. Yeah. For, okay. And, and then we then we had the, the correct people that it pertained to more. So now I have switched back to something mm-hmm. more relevant. But at the time, it was about being relevant for your buyer, right? Yeah. But at the time, it was it was pure genius. Um, you know, now, like, for example, like sometimes when we run marketing campaigns, we run campaigns, you know, from a certain individual inside of our company that's going to prompt them to open that email versus some low uh, hanging fruit inside the company that's not as powerful. Um, things like that. Are there ever like some? I hope under- they don't call you low hanging fruit. Right, right, right. We, we right. might have a discrimination case. In I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm an avocado. I, I'm good everywhere. But are there any undercover tactics that you think that like are like the most genius ways for someone trying to reach someone way above their pay grade? Say, if I want to contact the CEO of Snapchat tomorrow, like, yeah. do you have any tools or methods to be able to contact anybody? The fastest way to contact somebody like that is to have the right value prop for them. So uh, let me back up and give it. So something I think is really helpful is when we picture scenarios about businesses that we're not in. So if I say, hey, here's how to go talk to Snapchat for for your company, Trueface, you know, that that might be a tough thing to do because you're thinking about like, oh, here are all the people in between here and there at Snap who are would be involved in this decision. But I'll tell you what my boss told me when I was in fundraising. I, I, I targeted somebody and I said, hey, this person should give us a lot of money. They just gave money to name the hospital after them. And my boss said that you want to have an ask that's equivalent of the person that you're asking. And so if I was going to go to a billionaire and ask them for $100,000, that might not be the right request. If it's the first donation and there's another reason they're involved because it fits with their, you know, their, their philanthropic goals, yeah, absolutely. So most of the time when I tell people, like, you don't go after naming rights in your first pitch to somebody, or you don't go after those big billionaires unless you have the hospital naming rights available. Yeah, people get that, and they go, yeah, that makes sense. Why you wouldn't want to go to Benioff unless you had a hospital you can name after him? Because he wants to make really big impact because he's got the revenue and the funds to do that. The same is true when you try to go sell to the C-suite. There's a great book called Selling the Veto, V-I-T-O, the very important top officer. And it's an old book, and, it, and it, you know, one of, and the way you know it's old for sure is that they talk about you know inner office mail, where if you send the send a memo to Microsoft and you address you know one letter inside there to Bill Gates and one letter to Steve Ballmer and then et cetera et cetera to all the people that were were at Microsoft at the time, then you force these executives to see if anybody else is going to take action on it, so you force them to have a conversation about your product, and the way to do that is to FedEx something to the mailroom. Because you know it's going to get there. And the mailroom's job, what's that guy's job? Is to make sure the mail gets there. He wants to do his job, so he's going to make sure the mail gets on the right desk. And then these five letters get opened roughly at the same time, and now they've got to have a conversation about it. Now, will that always work? Uh, No. 
will that work in today's you know communication? Maybe a FedEx if somebody's still going to get opened, still going to look important. But if that's your only outreach and you're selling T-shirts for ten dollars and you're spending twelve dollars on your FedEx envelope, probably doesn't make sense. But if you have the right ask for that person because you know enough about their persona, you say, "I'll bet you're struggling with this right now," and your offer is aligned with the level of that where that decision is made. You know, the CEO of Snapchat is not going to make a decision about uh, you know a software that only affects two or three employees, or you know, if you were selling them a you know a tool. Um, you know, for, for cause marketing, uh, CEO Snapchat's not working on cause marketing right now. That's not one of their goals. I, I don't think maybe, but there's somebody else who's going to run that. Whereas if you reach out and you say, Hey, you know what? I know you're also managing these things with the way you do your public reporting. I was really involved in that stuff, you know, and so knowing what they're, what they're interested in, uh, you might be able to get like an SVP of communications or uh, a CEO involved in something like that at the right timing for their company. Right. I like that. So finding the right value prop to present to the proper person yeah. is yeah. the key to having any sort of potential sale happen. So yeah. can I offer one more shortcut? Of course. Is, uh, you know, if you're selling to public companies, like your example with Snap, is a lot of public companies, you'll be able to find their uh, annual report or a memo from the, from the CEO. Uh, usually that stuff is written by communications anyway. But the example I always point to when I'm training sales teams is looking at a letter that Mark Benioff wrote. I think I used the one from 2017, but he mentions two different places that they're going to be the most innovative company in Silicon Valley. And then two other places he says, we're going to be the best place to work. We were the number one best place to work in this magazine. And Forbes said we were on the top, whatever he was that, that year. And those, those are two really clear concepts that now when you're reaching out, it may not be that you're reaching out to, to Mark, you might be reaching out to somebody else in the organization, but you want to know how do they align with innovation? How do they align with being a great place to work, right? If one of the things that you have to do to be a great place to work is to have a, a keyless entry system so your employees are happy coming to work and don't have to fiddle for keys and badges and using their thumbprints and scanners, they should call you. And that's the perfect time to talk to them about innovation and being a great place to work. But if you're gonna pitch you know, something else that, that, that doesn't align with those things, it might be really hard to find somebody who, who has their OKRs this quarter to, be, to fix that thing or at Salesforce would be their V2 mom. But understanding really how they evaluate and what they target, I, I think it's just crucial to be successful in sales. What would you say to that person that's like looking for like the ideal job, say I wanted to work for Snapchat, right? Or yeah. I wanted to work yeah. for them. You know, I think a big issue a lot of people run into today is they send in their resume with their cover photo and they become one amongst 300 stacks. Yeah. Um, what can people 300 do? 300 if you're lucky. Right. What can people do that's like a curveball? Maybe DMing them on LinkedIn or doing something like what would you recommend to someone to really make a real big impact on something if they're trying to get their dream position somewhere? Well, my advice with, with folks who are going through a career transition is one, it's okay if you don't know what you want. It's okay to network and pursue uh, and to look for opportunities. And as long as you're authentic and you start with giving value first, and that's the hardest part. It's going to start with some self-reflection for you to identify what, where you provide the most value. This is a hard question to answer if you're listening to this and you're a junior in college and you're thinking about where you're going to intern this summer. This is a really hard question to answer, but you'll find that if you ask some of your friends the things that they think you're good at, that could be the first thing to tar target. Say, okay, well, who needs this thing that my friends say I'm good at? My friends say that I'm, I'm really great at proofreading fast. 
Okay, who needs that? Social media marketing? Yeah, we need proofreaders to be able to go fast in social media, absolutely. You know, people who can get ad copy out really quick, there's a few other jobs where that would be great. Now, see if you can provide value in a way that you're showing somebody that you do that thing and that you've got that skill, right? I think that is that that could be a, a crucial way to do it. And then the other thing is, if again, like we're talking about sales examples, but the same thing can be true in, in job search, is understanding who you're reaching out to, what they're trying to accomplish, right? The recruiter, what are they trying to accomplish? To get the right person in the role and get the role closed as fast as possible. The hiring manager, they might be able to try, be trying to accomplish something else. And you have to present yourself as the way that that manager gets promoted. Bring me on the team. I'll take all the little stuff off your plate. If I do that successfully, you've got enough bandwidth to go get promoted. So now if I'm going to inbound to like a mid-senior hiring manager for an internship, I'm going to be really specific about the things that I can do. And I'll probably will have started right now in January. Uh, I don't know when you're going to drop this, but January, February, I'm going to start doing the things that will show that I've got the ability to make a dent this June when I try to go work for him or her. And I'm going to reach out and say, hey, have a look at this thing. And that's what I did. Right. One, one thing, one kind of very valuable thing that junior employees or, or college folks have that they don't realize they have is they have a perspective on the hiring market. And so if your listeners are trying to get jobs at software companies, Silicon Valley backed software companies that are trying to hire, well, they've got a perspective on how hiring happens and reaching out to the recruiter and say, hey, I can really help you get a hold of 10 kids at my school instead of just one. Here are the resume of a few of my friends, right? I work a lot with the transitioning vets and you know what these guys are really good at. Now, these guys are, uh, you know, really senior trained operators. But one thing they're really good at is building their networks and knowing who else can do this job? So if you get passed up for a job, they turn around, they look right back in their community. They say, hey, here's this fighter pilot you need to meet. He makes 32 decisions in a minute, and he's got this level of this and this level of training and undergrad with engineering. Well, that's really helpful. And I'm going to remember who made that intro. And a lot of, a lot of folks don't realize that they've got the power to, to help others when they think about being authentic and giving that value uh, because they do have great networks too because somebody wants to know their friends. Somebody wants to know about the thing they studied. Right. I love that. That was a great response. Providing value to the person is the, the biggest thing ever. People are always asking, but they're not giving. You know, give and then ask. It's It makes yeah. complete sense. So from your time advising all of these early stage startups, I mean, you've seen so many companies inside of your time frame, though you're still very young and, and you're crushing. Uh, what is the most common attribute that you have found amongst early stage startups yeah. that you see as key indicators that they might not be here three to five years from now? That's an interesting question. I think that, um, you know, sometimes when you go into a startup and you're interviewing it, it you notice uh, what people care about. Right. You know, there, you know, somebody pointed this out a long time ago to me that, you know, you can tell what a culture cares about by how many words they have for the same item, right? Like how many different words do we have for money? And we have, we adopt words from other cultures to even use that, uh, that language because money is so important and drives, drives our, our, our conversations and, and our culture. Um, you know, same thing, right? You go into a startup and you listen to their words, right? You can hear culturally what's important to them by the things that they talk about. Um, you know, you walk into a startup and, you know, I, I, I can think of two advertising companies that were head to head for a little while. And one of them, if you walked in, it would be really hard not to be able to smell alcohol in some form, right? 
whether it was, you know, uh, open bottles of wine from the night before, whether it was a happy hour that was about to start at three or four o'clock and another startup that was very similar, that it had a very different value system that they, they had a policy. There was no drop on the floor unless it was from four to five on Thursday afternoons for, for all hands meetings. Now, I, I'm not saying that, that whether or not someone drinks is going to be the indicator of the mo- the, whether or not they're going to have staying power. We've seen plenty of, of companies on both sides. But as an example to what type of culture that is, if it's a party culture, okay, that's one of the things they look for. So a straight answer on like what are the qualities that shows you someone's not going to be around, if they're spending time on the wrong stuff, if they're behind and they're trying to catch up to, to an industry incumbent, it probably shouldn't be one of those offices that feels like a party every day. It should probably be one of those offices where you go in, you know, and, and an example of this. So I was, uh, I hosted an event at, at my company, Admiral, years and years ago when I was running training there. And I had, a, I, at this point, I had three teams of, it was about probably total 20 people. And I left the sales floor to host this event. I had three or four other sales leaders with me that wanted a quick tour before we did our meeting. And so I, I, I brought some people by, and this was a comment from uh, a really good friend of mine who saw the sales floor and looked at it and said, oh, wait, who's, what's that team all about? And I said, oh, that's my team. And he looked at his watch, and it was, it was just about uh, it was like it was just about 6 o'clock, and he was like, I'm going to text a picture of this to my team to show them that your team is still working. And it, did, it didn't occur to me that that would be a sign that we were going to be successful and get to a place where we're doing $300 million revenue. It was just a sign to me that I had people that wanted and cared about doing well and doing well together. Um, and you could feel that because it didn't feel like Everybody was chained to their desk. Like I was in an ad agency in San Jose. We were absolutely chained to our desk. Uh, that was not the case here. It was people that wanted to be there, wanted to do well, wanted to kick ass. And, and that was really cool. Yeah. And that, that cult, it goes back to the culture. The culture is just the, the nourishing ground for, yeah. for growth, building your, building yeah. your business, like, like a jungle, make sure you got your nutrients. <laughs> you got to have everything in the jungle, make people happy. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you walk into a startup, whether you're deciding to invest, whether you're trying to, trying to work there, or whether you're deciding if they're going to be good mentors there. When you walk in, if you start and you can you can keep yourself authentic and engage in the conversations you have, you're going to hear what that culture is like. You're going to hear if it's supportive. You're going to hear if it's cutthroat. You're going to hear if it's going to be a nightmare scenario like out of one of Dan Lyons' stories. Or you're going to hear the, oh, man, this is really a place that, that young people thrive and and. And, and that'll, that'll be a good tell uh, about what you're looking for. Definitely. I'm super interested in Elite Meet. Um, yeah. On your LinkedIn. I got involved because of you guys. Sean is the one who introduced me to Elite Meet. It's so cool. CEO. Did you know that? I, I did not know that he introduced you, no. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So I got, I got a cold call. When I was back working at 500 Startups, and I was an entrepreneur in residence there, I was starting my sales consulting company at the time. And uh, started to get into more coaching. And so I was, I was brought in as a sales coach for those founders that were in the, I think that was batch 21 and 22 that I, that, that I was there for. And um, while I was there, uh, you know, Sean, who reached out and said, hey, does anybody have any interest in talking to some veterans who are making career transitions? And I, of course, stuck my hand up for, for two reasons. One, uh, I've had really shitty career transitions. Like, it all sounds great. You were telling me, like, people look at, you know, chapter 20 and think that the book started out great uh, when they when they look and, and evaluate people who have a chance to tell their story in forums like this. Uh, I've had some really shitty career transitions. I've had some times where it took me eight, nine months to go find a job. And, and that sucks. And so when somebody said, hey, do you mind talking to a group of transitioning vets about this? 
I said, absolutely. And then I started to learn about the community, that, that transitioning vets is a, is a great cause. But uh, an additional kind of factor with this group is that these, these are, are, are men and women who are transitioning from the, the top 1% of their jobs in the military, right? Green Berets are what they call force multipliers. They go in and they teach other people around them to be more successful. They go in and they, often they're training local indigenous forces. How cool is that? How much so do you want cool. to be like that at your startup, right? Yeah. It, uh, one of the, the guys that, that I worked with was, um, you know, when he was serving, he was serving as a Navy SEAL and, uh, and it was responsible for a very large training implementation. And he said, I don't really know what I'm going to do after this. I wonder if anybody needs this type of skill uh, out in the startup world. Absolutely. I ran training for 300 people and I barely knew what I was doing. I would love for somebody who regularly is training thousands of people to keep their skills sharp because they're doing it on a different timeline, right? These fighter pilots who make, you know, I think I said 32 decisions in a minute earlier. Uh, I'm not sure what the real count is, but um, the ability to execute quickly, that is just awesome. So if you want to know more, elitemeet.us is the website where you can figure out if there's a way for you to get involved. We host small networking events all over the country, and we also host larger events for hiring partners. So if you're in the place where you know that mid-stage or late-stage startup or, or small public company and you're thinking, gosh, I really could use some support to bring in you know, operational uh, excellence into my organization, Elite Meet might be a great way to do that so you can get in touch with the folks who either have a hiring partner or offered a mentor. Uh, or, of course, hit me up on LinkedIn, and I'll, I'll point you in the right direction. Man, dude, those seals, they're, they're a whole different breed of human. Yeah, it turns out. But, you know, a lot of times when you get to, you get to learn someone's story, uh, not everybody is, uh, you know, uh, comes out of the womb knowing that they want to grow up to be Jocko Willink. Uh, most of the seals that I know have, have a wide range of skills and talents and interests, and uh, some of whom are, you know, very hard-edged tactical operators who can make very quick decisions and, 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 and do that kind of work, uh, in, in a military setting. And some are, you know, managing, you know, ports and ships and millions and millions of dollars of equipment or managing, you know, communication infrastructure because everybody needs to be able to talk to each other. Uh, you know, one of the guys that, that I worked with was a, an operator where, where he taught others how to manage drone strikes which, you know, in the comfort of my little office here and enjoying, you know, Soma, San Francisco, I don't think about that very much. But the fact that there was somebody who figured out a way to train a group of people to be able to do something so that they could increase their efficiency by 100% in the first attempt and then basically reduce by multiplier of 10 the amount of time that it takes to, to remove a, a, a target, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I'm excited about someone like that repurposing their skills to make my my startups go faster, right? Because I would love for there not to need uh, somebody doing these jobs around the world. I would I would love it to have a world like that. We don't, and so our job is the people who who volunteer to go do the things that you and I didn't sign up to go do, because uh, I, I would never go do that. Our job is to make sure they have positive career transitions when they come back home, uh, and that's one of the things I work on with that organization. So. Uh, for anybody who wants to learn more, I'd be happy to connect them. Man, I love that. That's your passion. Your passion about it, and it's so cool. Uh, I can't turn it off, man. Can't turn it off. But like you know, people see you again, and and they see your background and your story, and when you go up in these speeches, and they see you, and they're like, "Wow!" Like your your training and your knowledge is is so extensive on the subject of sales. You've been doing it for so long. 
you're able to walk into any situation yeah. with anybody and just be yourself. And it's hard to just be yourself in, in high pressured situations. But is there something that like when looking at yourself that you think that you low key suck at and you wish you were better? I think that I think being able to leave the ego at the door and being able to walk into a room and uh, be authentic. You know, that's that's a hard thing to do. You know, a lot of people talk about, you know, I'm an introvert, so I can't go do sales or I can't go into a room or give a talk. And uh, truthfully, I think that, you know, we're we're all have some things that we're introverted about. You know, I was um, reading a book right now by Amy Cuddy called Presence, where she talks a little bit about how uh, folks uh, who will occasionally get kind of self-absorbed and overwhelmed. Um, she she did a study and said, basically, this is everybody. Everybody has a time where this happens. You're not always going to be on and engaged and authentic and, and connected. Uh, many of us are thinking about ourselves. Right. Even as I'm giving you this answer and telling you that the, one of the things that I'm working on, I've thought about myself five times in the same sentence. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, do I look right in the camera? Do you hear this? Am I getting the name of the book right? So I don't sound like an idiot who, who reads a book on audible, right? <laughs> like, like these are the things that, that, that go through your mind when you're talking. And that's one of the hardest things to kind of leave at the door. So that's, that's one of the things. Um, you know, I've got a list uh, and a post-it note right here on my computer of the things that I'm working on, and I would encourage anybody who's, who's thinking like that to, to, to you know, claim it and name it and say this is the thing that I want to do better, um, because that's that's something that helps me is to just identify what I want to continue growing in. You know, I, I love kind of presenting this question to anyone that's a high performance entrepreneur, and it's kind of the the the, the hindsight look back into your own life if you could of teleported back when you were 21 or fresh out of college, right yeah. before you sent in your application to become a social studies teacher. And you could have maybe whispered one, two or three things into your ear right now. Like that could have just maybe saved you so much time, money and learning experiences. What do you think those things would be? Mm. What do you think you would tell yourself? Well, I think one of those things for sure is I would tell myself that it's okay to not know what you want. And I mentioned this a, a minute ago, but uh, that that that's critical. Um, I think there are times that I acted very quickly because I thought that I wanted something, and I learned I learned that I didn't. I've, I've done that in personal relationships. I've done that in in career relationships. I've done that in business. You know, this is a deal that I want to get done. I go get it done. And it's like, oh, that, this really wasn't a great fit. Uh, I've seen that. I've seen that happen. So that's something that I would whisper in my ear for sure. Um, and then I would also. Uh, I also wish that, you know, earlier in my career, I did a better job of kind of identifying ways to have balance and take care of myself. Um, I think that uh, it's easy for me to get kind of heads down into one thing and forget about some of the other things that are around. You know, I, I posted actually on LinkedIn today that um, yesterday was a really big day for me because I got to take a couple hours off in the afternoon and go read to my kids' class. And so I was the mystery reader in my daughter's first grade class. And then uh, I also stopped by my, my daughter Lily in her kindergarten class. And that was an awesome day for me because I thought that going out on my own as a, as a started as a consultant and eventually as a full-time executive coach, I thought that meant that I could make my own schedule, work from home, and do a lot of things that never came to fruition. For one, I can't work from home. It's not the environment that I need, so I need to work in an office. I know that now, and now I'm focused on that, and that helps me be successful. But the other thing is, I thought I'd be able to pick and choose my own schedule. That's not that, that hadn't been the case. It took me two years to get to the place where I'd say, 
okay, this is a block of time that I feel really good about having off, and I'm not worried about the next call. I'm just going to, to, to prioritize my day around the stuff I want. I wish that I knew I could have done that while I was working a W-2 job. And I just, I'd always said like, oh, well, if I ever stop working and I go into work for myself, then I'm going to change my schedule. And if I had done that, you know, 20 years ago, I think I would be a, a very different person. I would have managed some of the other personal goals that I have and, and, and I've since given up on. Now, that, that's just the things that I think about. There are, I think, plenty of things that I did right along the way. One was I used to have a collection of job descriptions that I would, that I would keep in a drawer back before, you know, you could go to LinkedIn and see what somebody did to get to where they were. Uh, I would just, anytime I saw a job description that I thought was cool and circulated, I'd put it into a folder on my desktop and then I'd go back and I'd read them and I'd say, oh, what are the skills that I need for that job? And then I'd volunteer for them. And eventually people would say, hey, you keep volunteering for this stuff, sure, we'll let you go do one of those things. Uh, and, that's, and that's one of the things I did. And if I had known that it wasn't a single point destination, you know, at the time it was, I want to go be the CEO of a big nonprofit like Boys and Girls Club of Chicago. That was my path. That's what I wanted to do. And I worked hard to get to a place where I, could, I was a contender for jobs like that. And when I got there, I realized that that wasn't what I wanted anymore and that the target moved. And, uh, and I think that if I had known earlier the target was going to move, I think I'd still work just as hard to go get it. But I think I would have done the work differently and I would have been more open to when that focus had changed rather than uh, waiting till it was a dramatic, oh, shit, what am I going to do, existential life crisis. Uh, instead, maybe have some of those life crises more often in a year uh, so I can make smaller decisions than try to make big decisions. You can really tell you, you've really thought about that question before. That was very insightful. I think about this topic a lot, but I didn't think you were going to ask me that. No. <laughs> I feel you. Do you have a certain spot or a certain thing in your life where you, yeah. uh, it's kind of like your idea place? Like you just generate wherever you're, whenever you're in this location doing this thing, your mind mm. just flows with ideas and creativity. You know, I don't, I don't really have one of those. Um, there are some places where I wish that were the case. Um, but one of the things that I've started to do is, you know, let myself off the hook if those thoughts are, or, you know, I, I write a lot for my job. And so when I'm trying to get something written, uh, sometimes it doesn't come to me and I'm trying to let myself off the hook to, excuse me, to allow that creativity to happen at some other time uh, or in some other place. Um, trying to design better environments for myself. I had this amazing experience last fall. I went on a 10-day uh, workshop at University of California at Berkeley and the Haas School of Business has a partnership with the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute. And so I went there to start working on certification as executive coach. And because there was so much to do in the program, I had to tell my family and my clients that my phone was going to be off. And, and it was basically like 10 days of having my phone off. And I discovered that, um, and this may seem like, you know, people listening will be like, yeah, dummy, of course your phone's a distraction. But I hadn't realized how much of a distraction my phone had been until I had set it down and, and had that kind of, you know, present, uh, you know, handful of days. And, and I really realized that that's something that, that contributes, you know. And so even as we talk now, my phone's on a charger somewhere that I'm away from. And not, not only a year ago did I actually make fun of somebody for having their phone on a charger that wasn't near them. Like, why wouldn't you just plug this in on your desk so you could watch your phone too, uh, was a thought that I had. And now I'm on the other side of that argument. Yeah. Pretty, pretty holy. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I know I personally can. That's definitely my biggest kryptonite is 
Instagram Explore page. It's like, damn, it's got all this, <laughs> all this scuba diving, yeah. fish, weird stuff I'm into. Like, I just find myself. Yeah. I mean, you know what's interesting is like a nice self reflection is when you go to those Explore pages or if you go to like Amazon, like suggested products, it starts to tell you what the device knows about you. Right. There's other ways to do this, too. Actually, you can go look up what cookie pools your browsers had and they'll say, hey, this is what we know about you. You know, you're between 40 and 45. This is the type of car you drive. This is the type of job you have. Uh, those sites, too, you can go to. But if you just go to Instagram Explore, the stuff they're suggesting is the stuff that you've already shown interest in. So if you don't like what's on that page, maybe maybe do some self-reflection. Is there any website that you can go to to see those cookies? Yeah, I would have to Google and find you one, but I'll, maybe I'll send you one for the show notes. But uh, cool. Uh, but there's uh, there's a couple different resources that I'm thinking of that uh, where where you used to be able to find out what behavioral targeting campaigns you're in. Now with a lot of the stuff that came out post Cambridge Analytica, uh, I think there's probably some links and better articles than whatever I'd find for you. But I'll give it a look. Nice. Well. Ryan, we've come to the the ultimate glorious question that is the Len Jones Party of Two podcast, and okay. and that has to do with the person right now that's maybe listening to this on their morning or their afternoon commute, and you know maybe they just had a long day at work, and either yeah. either they love what they're doing, maybe they're they're crushing it, maybe they're making Google engineering money, making three hundred grand yeah. a year, lifestyle beautiful, everything. Um, or, you know, maybe they hate what they're doing. They feel under fulfilled. They feel like they're not learning anything new. But in the back of their mm-hmm. mind, they're thinking to themselves, like, I want to start a business or I want to start a side hustle yeah. or I want to do something that's me that that really is uses my talents. But something's holding them back. I don't know what yeah. it is, but something's holding them back and they're not making those first moves. What would you say to that person that's right on the edge of taking a massive like leap of faith in their life towards doing what they love? Well, I think that, I mean, I can't say what's right for everybody. I'm not there. I'm not sitting next to you, you know, on that, that commute home. But when I start to think about like being at those kind of critical steps, right? Like I told a mentor of mine who was just one of the best advisors I've ever had. I told her about starting my business. And I said, I think I'm about to jump off this cliff. And she reacted to that really negatively. She was like, why are you talking about jumping off a cliff? Like, this is an amazing thing. Like, if you use another metaphor, I think she said something about soaring. But at this point, my, my mentor was telling me I was wrong, so I was, like, blacked out. But, uh, but she basically had made the point, like, if you, if you change that metaphor and you think about not, like, it is a big change and you're jumping off the cliff. But instead, there are these small changes. Maybe you're, you're taking flight. Um, that think is 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 what i'm trying to say here is is that you know if you feel like it's a huge step it it might be but but rarely in my life has it been such a big step it can be a little step and so um you know i would just say if you're thinking gosh i'd really like to work for myself but i don't know where to start start with what are the things that people naturally come to you for those are valuable things that somebody else is looking for where can you apply that you know, I, I worked with an entrepreneur last year out of a, a really cool accelerator. I do a lot of global travel. So I spent, I did talks in 15 different accelerators in 13 countries last year. Uh, I had a great time, but I met people all over the world. And I met somebody who had a really cool startup that, that placed babysitters. And she, but what she, she hadn't thought about is that she had built out an re, enormous recruiting infrastructure that could be used for any type of recruiting. And so she could use that same tool that, you know, to place a $13 an hour babysitter could be used to place a $13,000 engineer hire 
uh, in terms of the bounty for an engineering hire. Um, and so I think that that if you go into it not thinking, oh, I'm going to go change the world tomorrow with this great big thing, and you you know you write your your Jeff Bezos mem- memo where like the 80s he wrote out all of what's happening at Amazon today, and like we don't all have that ability to forward look and think about the future. But if instead we think about the little steps and we go, okay, what is most valuable about the thing that I'm doing? What do my friends come and ask me about? That starts to get really powerful because like, okay, how do I monetize this little thing? When I discovered that one of the best things that I did as a manager was to, to implement uh, coaching on my team, it started to feel really natural to say, oh, you know what? I want to coach full time because that's the best part of what I was doing as a sales leader was coaching and helping other people reach their, their goals, their dreams. That was really fun. I want to go do that. I wonder if anybody would ever pay me to go do that. And as soon as I put that out in the world, I discovered that, sure enough, there are people who saw a lot of value to that. And it's just a matter of aligning that value with the amount of time you can spend for it and deciding if it works for you. So if you're on that commute home and you're thinking, gosh, man, this sounds great to have my own business, one, know that it's a, it's a long road and it's really hard. But there are little things that you can do and you can start right now, whether that's listening to Gary Vee, taking his advice for like going to a yard sale and selling something on eBay, uh, or going to Craigslist and looking to see, hey, what's advertised as a need on Craigslist? Can you do that? Maybe it's rehabbing furniture. You know, Maybe it's uh, helping somebody with their accounting. Maybe it's being a personal assistant. There are other things that you can do right now that you might get a lot of enjoyment out of and, and discover that your side hustle uh, can be a hobby you get paid for. Love it. Ryan, how can people find more of, of Ryan Williams? If, if, if I'm just memorized by your words, where, where can I find more of you? <laughs> well, uh, follow me on LinkedIn. I send out a lot of updates. I'm going to try to send out more uh, updates on, on talks I've given. Um, if you're interested on the sales side of things, and this is going to be helpful for founders, uh, both sales books I'm reading as well as talks I've given, uh, I, I've spent the last year and a half trying to get a lot of those on my website, salescollider.com slash blog will take you to a couple of interviews I'm really proud of, uh, two Series A investors talking about what they look at. One, the MD from Bain Capital, as well as uh, a partner at Emergence Capital, who both have done amazing deals in the venture space, talking about what it takes for a Series A company to be at that stage. If you're thinking about getting your value prop figured out, you should check out on the, on the blog. I do a talk for Latvian founders on how to do fundraising, but it's really applicable to anybody but it's around finding those kind of specific value props, five specifics, and a way to introduce yourself. That can be good for career transition. This talk is about fundraising, but it's things like that that you'll find on the site and, and feel free to get, a t- get in touch with me there or follow on LinkedIn for more stuff. I'm not super active on Twitter uh, or Facebook anymore, but, um, but those things are mostly just family updates, uh, but feel free to, to hit me up in those other two spots. All right, Ryan. It's been real, man. I really appreciate your time as always. And next time you're out in uh, Santa Monica, holla at your boy. Oh, I'd love to come down to the Silicon Beach and surf a little. Nice. So we'll get that done sometime soon. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it again and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. I'll let your face correct. What's up, all right? All right, peace. Thank you for listening to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time, peace.